Mark again this morning. If you'd like to go ahead and begin opening, opening God's Word to the Gospel according to Mark, chapter number 1. We're going to continue to work our way verse by verse through this wonderful book as we walk with Jesus through this summer and into the fall. Mark chapter 1, and we're going to begin in verse about 21. You will uh, you recognize the story because we've, we've had this before us before as a church, and, and I know many of us have probably studied this, and this is one of those events that's kind of a, of a, of a we, we all kind of know this one. But I want us to take a look at it from a little bit different light, because the first thing that as I, as I begin to read in the, in the Gospel of Mark, one of the first things I try to imagine is what would it have been like to be one of the disciples, to be one of the followers of Jesus, going with him, doing with him, being a part of his group, always being with him. What would it have been like to see all of those miracles? What would it have been like to see all of those miraculous things that happened and, and walking on the water, all the, the amazing things that happened? Well, one thing I can tell you that I know for absolute certain, the disciples, they went to church a lot. I mean, they were in services quite a bit. You know, sometimes we feel like we've done God a wild favor because we went to church on a Wednesday night because, wow, we really did something. Um, the disciples were in church a lot, whether it was an organized, like, church day or synagogue day. Uh, they were in open-air training times. They were on the mountainsides. They were there when they fed the 4,000, when they fed the 5,000. They were the helpers. They were doing crowd control. They were helping people be seated. They were doing all the things that would happen in church. They were doing them. And then there were also those days where they had organized worship time, the Sabbath day, the Sabbath services down at the synagogue. And Jesus, the Bible tells us it was his normal, regular, it was his custom, the, old, the King James Version says, as was his custom, he went to the Sabbath or to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And so that's where we begin. The guys have just been called from their fishermen's nets, and they're beginning to follow Jesus. He takes them into the synagogue, that next synagogue the Sabbath service, there in verse 21. Let me read just a couple of verses, and we'll follow through the rest of this as we go. Verse 21, chapter 1. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and began to teach. And they were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. He took them into a worship service. Now, not the kind of church meeting that, in the sense that we have our church meetings today, but still, you have to understand a little bit about the ancient times, and that was, for a Jewish community, the synagogue was the center of community life. For a Jewish village, the, the, for the, even if it was a big city and there was a Jewish colony, there are people from a, a Jewish background, it would revolve around that local synagogue because that local synagogue was their primary school. That's where they sent their children to learn to read and then to learn Torah, to learn the, the, the Old Testament scriptures. That was their primary school. It was also their local worship center. That's where they went. That's where they went to worship. It was the hometown seminary. If you had some budding young theologian who wanted to find out more about the Word of God, you'd send him down to the seminary or to the synagogue, and, and the rabbi and the other teachers there would, would help him to study the Bible. But it was also, and it had become by this time when Jesus was teaching, it had become the local doctrinal debate society. So if you had a different point of view, or if you had believed this way, or you had believed that way, this is where they would come together and kind of thrash that out sometimes. And, and the way it would work 
much like we do it here today, they would come together and they would unroll the first book of their Hebrew Bible. Now, the first book of the Hebrew Bible was the book of Psalms. And so, and that that's, that's be kind of cool if our first book was the book of Psalms because we'd know that was priority in a service. They would open it up, maybe they'd sing one or two long Psalms, sometimes several smaller ones because a lot of them are just about the length of a chorus. And they would sing those worship songs and then someone would stand and unroll with the law or one of the prophets perhaps, and he would read a passage of scripture, and then the scribes, the whoever the, the, the rabbi might have been at that time, the, the person who read it, would then try to explain it or try to at least make sure everybody understood it. And, and it, it was required. Now this is something, maybe you've never heard this before, but this is, blows my mind. It was a, a requirement that if you had 10 married Jewish men in any city, it was their job to form a synagogue. It was the, if you had 10 families, 10 Jewish families, 10 Jewish married men, they were required, well, by tradition, so that, you know, nobody came and twisted their arm, but they were expected to form a synagogue because they needed that center of Jewish learning. They needed that center of Jewish life. And then as the congregation grew and more families were added, eventually they might employ a rabbi or even two. Or they, but the idea was to train up those Jewish children to be Jewish children, to be people of the book to train up and become the center of that Jewish life for that ten or so families. Jesus had grown up in such a synagogue. In the, book, in the city of Nazareth, in fact, if you go today, they can take you to the place where they know that synagogue was in Jesus' time. They can take you and you can sit there and you can almost imagine the men sitting around as they would listen to the word of God and maybe talk back and forth. And little young Jesus was in that synagogue as a little boy growing up there. Now it was smaller than the one in Capernaum that he's about to go into. But because the smaller villages were expected to have a synagogue but didn't always have a rabbi, it was not unusual at all for a traveling rabbi or a traveling teacher or scribe to be invited to speak. Jesus, was this, this was not his home church. This was just a place he, he came in to, to worship, and they saw that he was a rabbi with his students. They said, hey, rabbi, would you like to speak? And Jesus began to teach. This is not unusual at all. This was what they would have expected him to do. And we see Jesus taking on this role in other places. As you go through the scripture, you'll see it was his custom to go into a synagogue and to speak. Paul did that same thing all through the book of Acts as we studied that. And so this day... Started out totally normal, just like every other Sabbath day. They were just going down to church. And if you'll forgive me, I'm going to interchange the words church and synagogue a lot. But it was a normal, everyday worship day. Now, it didn't stay normal, okay? But it started off pretty normal because it was totally normal. It was expected. Jesus, the Lord, was faithful to synagogue on a day of worship, and he took his group down to the synagogue. Jesus and his people were never, they never became those how can I say this? I, I talked about last week about that Sunday morning saint who has just kind of showed up when they got ready. And, and that's, that's not what Jesus taught his people. They were in church a lot. And anytime, anytime there was a service, a worship gathering, a festival, a feast, Jesus was there. Now, don't get me wrong. He was Jesus everywhere he went. He was on mission doing God's work, being the Savior, being the Son of God, being the, the minister of the Word everywhere he went. But when there was a special, or there was a day of worship, Jesus was there. And, and, and a lot of times as we're reading through this passage, and the reason I wanted to stop here was because a lot of times we read this and we jump right on into the next bit. Because the exciting part is yet to come. But I need you to know that there's something very important here because Jesus took his people, his people went to the place of worship. And I have to ask very gently but forcefully, I wonder if that could be said about God's people today. 
I wonder if it's really still part of our lives, if it's really still part of our tradition, if it's really still part of our everyday thinking that when it's the Lord's day, we go to the Lord's house to hear the Lord's word preached by the Lord's man from the God's word. Is it still that's normal for us? Or has that kind of become optional? When did we lose the priority for church attendance? When did worship become such an optional activity? Because I can tell you, whenever that was, we lost a lot more than we think we did. When worship and gathering as a church ceased to be the center of our community, we lost a lot more than we think we did. Jesus took his people to church. Here's how it began, though, to be not normal. Jesus, it says there in verse 22, he was, they were amazed at his teaching. It wasn't normal in that he began to teach in a way they had never heard anyone teach. He wasn't just kind of explaining the Scripture and just explaining the, the, the hard-to-understand words. He was teaching in a way, and it's, it's funny, when somebody can teach with great authority, it can come across with great simplicity. You know, if somebody who has, they can just, they can just teach it straight, here it is, this is how you do it. You find somebody who's a, an expert welder, and he can show you how to do it. It's pretty simple, at least to him. And he can explain it. You, here it is. This is how you do it. Somebody who's an expert fisherman. We won't talk about the fisherman of this week, but somebody who knows how to do it. You can fill the boat. It seems easy to them. Well, Jesus spoke with simplicity of great authority as if he wrote the manual. Because in every real way he did. He was able to speak with simplicity of authority as if he were the author. It's interesting to me, and I think about Jesus preaching. Jesus never had to stand and say, well, in my opinion. You ever hear somebody say that? Jesus never had to say that. Jesus never had to say, well, I think that this means Jesus never had to preach that way. Jesus never had to, to say, well, this is just what I think about it. He knew and he taught as one who knew as though he were sure and could be dogmatic about everything in this book. He was sure of it. Now, the usual procedure, as I mentioned before, was for a passage to be read. It would be explained then by the scribe or the rabbi. They would try to make some sense of it. But if there was anything even the least bit controversial, Dr. Smellfungus over on the left would stand up and say, Now, brother, there's another opinion about that. And they would begin to tell their opinion. Maybe there was a, 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 a different interpretation of that particular word. And they would start to have a conversation back and forth across the, across the aisles there at the synagogue. And that was totally normal. They would have these. Ex well, then somebody else back on the back row was saying, well, I didn't hear it like that. I was out listening to this guy on the hillside the other day. And he said this. And they'd have all this great discussion. That was what they expected. That was what it was normal in that synagogue, in most synagogues of that day. Because someone else would try to argue, well, Jesus totally changed that pattern he acted like this book had a definite meaning he acted like those words had a definite message that could be discovered that could be discerned that could become a part of your life totally different from the way they were worshiping in the first century in the synagogues and that's what i'm here to tell you this morning this book it may have some mysterious places in it but it's not supposed to remain a mystery. This book can be understood. It has a meaning. It has a plain sense. This is black print on white paper, in case you're wondering. Some places red print. But it's, it's, it's words on paper that mean what they say. And we are safe to take what God's Word says and believe it. 
Now, I may need to ask the question, what did it mean when it was written down? What, did it, what does it mean to me today because of what it meant then? Because a lot of times we take it and we, we can get it muddy in our head, but it actually is available to the church. The child of God today can know what God meant for us to know, can understand what God said and take it into our lives. And the plain sense of Scripture can be what I believe, and I can be safe to do that. Even in the difficult passages, when it comes to a difficult passage, I'll compare Scripture with Scripture, trust in the Spirit of God to come and explain the Word of God to the people of God, and we then, because God's Word says it, can be dogmatic about it. I've mentioned before, there's lots of parts of God's Word we need to be bulldogmatic about. Because we can stand in a world that says, oh, there's lots of gray areas. There's some things that are not gray. They're black, they're white. It's pretty simple. We can be dogmatic about it. I don't have any reason to try to talk myself out of the plain, obvious meaning, the literal truth that we find in God's Word. The disciples, the attendees at the synagogue, all of them were used to this whole, well, here's the topic up for debate today. Who would like to speak on this topic? That was the kind of teaching. What they, today we call that the Socratic method. The Socratic teaching method where if you ever had somebody, you're, you're asking, maybe you've seen this in, in some of your, 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 your teaching, uh, the classes I'm talking to Derek. Derek, no, he knows I'm talking. Okay, <clears throat> Socratic method means I ask a question and the professor asks me a question back to see if I know what I'm talking about. And then as I understand a little bit more by the question that he asked, I can ask another intelligent question. He'll ask me another question back. That's what Socrates did way back in the day. Well, guess what? The rabbis had been doing that for a long time before Socrates ever found out about it. Because you ask a question to make sure that the person understands what they're really asking. And a lot of times you'll come to the conclusion on your own. And if you come to the conclusion on your own, you own it. Now I really believe it because I came to that. Well, that was what they were expecting. That was what was normal. Jesus did not do that. And as he began to teach God's word, that, that, that normally kind of roxious, that normally kind of talkative, you know, they're always whispering back in the back row because this is what I'm going to say. I hear what he's saying, but this is what I'm going to say. And they would be talking around and back. The, the, you could hear a pin drop in the Capernaum synagogue because they were listening to what he had to say. And they were beginning to see the truth of what he was preaching. And they were beginning to change in their hearts. And they were beginning to come together around what God's word was saying and what the man of God was preaching. And it was just exciting. They heard someone preaching for the first time in their lives, maybe, without any doubt, without any hedging. Here this man was preaching God's word with no prevarication, with no trying to hide behind somebody else's opinion. And they were loving it. Well, not everybody. Not everybody welcomed this departure from the usual uh, order of worship. Verse 23, let's look at that. And just then, there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out. Now just take that one little snippet for a moment and try to freeze frame that event. Here is Jesus in the middle of a point. People are loving it. People are riveted to what he's saying. And suddenly, suddenly, this man, a member or at least an attender, a part of the synagogue, jumps up, interrupts the teaching vehemently, abruptly, angrily, and we know demonically he's shouting. It says he cried out in a way that everybody there could tell that this is not just some angry church guy because we've all known some angry church guys. But this wasn't just an angry church guy. This was somebody who had an unclean spirit, what we today would call a demon. Now, had anybody up until this point recognized or realized that this man had a demon? I mean, would they have even been able to tell? Maybe not. But evidently, this man had been welcomed in and made to feel at home in this synagogue, maybe even comfortable. And by the way, I think that the, the, the unclean spirit inside this man probably loved it there. 
because here he was in the middle of a hotbed of debate. He could continually sow discord. He loved it there because he could sow confusion every day. He loved it there because he could always be injecting false doctrine. You say, does the devil go to church? You bet he does. You bet he does. And this one went to church or went to the synagogue every Sabbath, and he was planting doubt. He wouldn't always have to do it. Somebody else might be doing it. But every time he heard them starting to get unified around the Word of God or start to really get a hold of a, of a thought, he would just give enough, just enough to quench any real growth. He'd be there just to inject enough to ensure they never got unified and they never began to really love God or love each other. You ever know somebody who just loves to stir the pot? Well, that's what this guy did. He was one of those he would just stir the pot to make sure it kept boiling, make sure the strife kept going so that even when they began to get a little bit unified, it would be your group against my group because y'all are unified against us and we know we're all disagreeing on this, that, or the other thing. This man and the demon controlling him saw Jesus about to change all of that. And it, it made him mad. It made him see red, if you will. He saw his sweet setup being threatened. He saw the apple cart being disturbed. So he tried to shame and tried to shout down the Son of God. Now, first of all, I say good luck with that. But he tried to shame and shout down the Word of God. And again, as I said, don't be surprised by that because the devils are very regular in their church attendance. And I'm talking about even to this day. Every time something is about to happen good in a church, the enemy tries to get in there and, and muddy the water or, or, or hurt some person or hurt that person. or He tries to distract us. The enemy is here trying to sow disrespect. The enemy is right here in our midst planting division or making disturbance, doing whatever it takes to try to keep that church maybe fighting meaningless little battles amongst themselves so that the church forgets what the mission of the church really is. Do you remember the old song? Rescue the perishing, care for the dying, snatch them in pity from hell and the grave. Remember that old song? We used to sing that on Sunday mornings. Still in the hymnal. But if the church forgets that that's their job, and a church starts to say, you know, we're more interested in the color of the sign or the, 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 the nap of the carpet or, or how thick the paper's, you know, because we've got to have really thin paper because we're paying for it. You'd be amazed at the things we fight about as churches across this country. And the enemy's right there sowing that discord, sowing that disrespect because we've forgotten that our job is to preach the word of God and rescue the perishing. So this devil, this demonic spirit, interrupted in a clearly demonic voice, Read it in verse 24 with me, saying, What do we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Interesting. As you read that, he first of all began trying to distract from what Jesus was teaching. He didn't want anybody to remember what Jesus was teaching. He wanted to stop the service and get all of the attention upon him. And I think he probably accomplished that. But then not only that, he was trying to slander the Lord as a destroyer. You see there in verse 24 when he says, Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? He was demanding, claiming that Jesus didn't belong with them. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? This was a shocking interruption. I mean, it could have been a church-clearing event. You'd have somebody get up and start sounding like they're demon-possessed in this church right now. Some of us would be looking for the exits. Some of the rest of us be tackling. <laughs> I'm telling you, there's, there's just one, it'd be a weird moment in that church. 
And this man with the unclean spirit, the unclean spirit within this man was trying to pit Jesus over on one side against the whole congregation. You see how he used the us against you? What do we have to do with you? Have you come to destroy us? He was trying to say, I speak for this congregation. I speak for this synagogue. What are you even doing here? You don't belong here. Who do you think you are? And tried to paint Jesus as a destroyer come to destroy them, trying to speak for the synagogue. Jesus was not impressed. In verse 25, he very clearly, very calmly rebukes him. In fact, let's read it, verse 25. Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. Now, I've heard preachers come to this place, and they get all hot and sweaty, and they get out there on the edge of the, the, the pulpit area, and they just say, He cried, he yelled at that demon, he got in his face. I don't think he had to do any of that. Jesus spoke with the authority of the Son of God, and he told that man, be quiet and come out of him. And when he did, with no fear, no shouting, no repetition, by the way, you see, he didn't have to say it more than once. It was a command from on high through the lips of Jesus, and suddenly the man had a fit. In fact, take a look at verse 26. And throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. Suddenly this man who was mad, this man who was angry, this man who was standing against Jesus, suddenly this man had a fit, thrashing, screaming, probably rolling about on the floor. It says that he was having convulsions. And then as he cried and screamed even louder, the demon was gone. Spirit left him. Probably not the Sabbath service that they were expecting when they headed to church that, that Sabbath morning. Probably not. But I can tell you this. They got the point immediately. This spirit had interrupted. This spirit had tried to discredit Jesus and his teaching, tried to quench the teaching. This spirit had tried to disrupt the growing unity. This spirit had tried to disrupt the understanding and the growing faith that was coming there. And this enemy spirit is still at work among us today. Maybe not that exact one, but I'm here to tell you the enemy hates anything that might lead to greater unity and understanding in the people of God. Our enemy wants us confused. Our enemy wants us doubtful. Our enemy wants us suspicious of everybody else's motives. Our enemy wants us to be open-minded. I mean, after all, don't we need to maintain a multitude of opinions in case mine is wrong? I mean, isn't that right? I mean, shouldn't we do that rather than letting God's Word just tell us what it really means? Because then we have to settle on it, and then I have to stand on it. Wouldn't it be better just to have this open-minded thing where I can just, okay, if you believe that, I can believe that too, or I don't... It, you do that and you'll never be on a firm foundation. The enemy wants to keep God's word from all people, but especially he wants God's people never to really get a hold of God's word. And that's what he's attempting to do across this nation today. And the enemy that I'm talking about, the enemy of our souls, the enemy of God, he is a master of many of the tools that it takes to get that done, to sow discord, keep us from getting together. I mean, it might be something as silly as worship... Uh, Worship styles, arguing about worship styles. Or how about this? Let's argue about politics, but let's do it at church. Or let's argue about doctrine and religion, but on which side? Let's argue about entertainment, and can you go, or should you not, or is it PG, or is it PG-13? Let's just argue and argue and argue. The enemy wants that argument going on. 
because as long as we're arguing with each other, we're not out there rescuing the perishing and caring for the dying and snatching them in pity from death and the grave. He wants to be sowing discord. Maybe church is lasting too long. Maybe church ain't lasting long enough. Maybe we put this in the wrong order. Maybe that should be over there. Maybe we should be having church in a different place. It doesn't matter. Whatever he can use to divide us, the enemy will use projects that we begin to divide us. The enemy will use purchases that we make to divide us. The enemy will use programs that we do or don't do to divide us. Literally, almost anything he can do to throw a monkey wrench in the church to keep the people from God from coming together around the Word of God, to hear the man of God teach the truth of God so that the program of God can happen in the will of God to the glory of God and the kingdom of God. There's no way I can say that twice. But I know this. The enemy wants to stop you from learning God's Word because when you get the foundation of God's Word in your heart and you begin to build on that, then you can start to build for eternity. And you can start to resist Him and He will flee from you. And anything He can do to keep unity and love from breaking out, He's going to continue to do. But here they've seen, boop, he's gone. And, and their amazement only grew to astonishment as they realized, did that really just happen in church? I mean, picture that. Here's a guy over on the third row, left. And, and, and the teacher's preaching, and he pops up, and he's screaming and yelling, and all of a sudden he's doing convulsions on the floor, and everybody's thinking, call 911, and all of a sudden he's quiet. Everybody's looking. Did that really just happen in church? Yeah, it did. It really happened in the synagogue that day. And their amazement continued. It's what's really neat to me about it, though, and I think, I don't want you to miss this, that man came into the church that morning in shackles to a demon. He came into church that morning possessed by a devil. He came in there under the devil's thumb, and he walked out saying, look what the Lord has done. He could leave that place literally saying, my chains are gone. I've been set free. That's why he came to church that day. He didn't know it, but that's why he came to synagogue that day, to be released. But still, the most amazing thing of all is as we read verse 27, they still didn't just accept and believe it. They debated. Look at verse 27. And they were all amazed so that they debated amongst themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. They didn't look at this and say, wow, who is this? They instead said, what is this? They wanted to know what new teaching is this? Where can I get some of that? They still hadn't got to the place of, who is this? And how do I get to know him? Instead, they, they I mean, here this unclean spirit has just been thrown out of the place. And by the way, the unclean spirit had told them who he was. He's the, you're the Holy One of God back up there in verse number 24. But they had been so conditioned, it had become so ingrained in their heart not to just accept God's word. I mean, they'd been taught to question. They'd been taught to debate. They'd been taught to keep an open mind. They'd been taught to debate, not believe and receive. And we lost that as a congregation. I'm going to say congregation. I'm talking about the entire body of Christ. We lost that about two generations ago where we would go to church and just let God feed us. Many of their descendants are alive and well among us today. These people who are in that synagogue today who had to trot it past the, the, the judgment bar of their mind before they could believe God's word. God gave us his word to be the instruction manual for life, for building a godly, powerful life, for building a kingdom life that will last into eternity. We've treated God's word more like an advice column. 
And we look at it and we think, well, you know, that's kind of a good guideline for life and I can take it or leave it, but today I've just got to do this or tomorrow I've got to do that. The men in the synagogue began to question and debate and pass this great teaching that Jesus had just given them across the judgment seat of their minds and to see what they thought, to see if they could believe it, to see if they could accept it. And it's so much like that today. So many people today, we miss the power and simplicity of God's Word simply because we will not trust and obey. That might have been a good shouting verse right there. Because we miss the simplicity, the power, and the the authority of God's Word simply because we will not believe and receive, we will not trust and obey, as these men did. Verse 28, And immediately the news about him went out everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. Now this is, this is a parenthetical verse. It doesn't mean that happened that moment, but it does mean it continued from that moment on. They thought, wow, did you hear about what happened down at, at the Capernaum Synagogue? And I'm sure that they embellished it quite a bit, and the guy was bouncing off the ceilings and puking, all that kind of stuff. All we know is that the word went out, and people began to think, wow, that's different. And they began to come to hear what Jesus had to say. Two or three more thoughts and I'll ask God to show us what he would like us to do with this truth today. Number one, as we come and what do we take away from these verses here? You should know, I should know, we should be prepared for the fact that the enemy is still at work. The enemy is still at work trying to disturb our families, our churches, our states, our nation. The enemy is still at work. The enemy is still at work trying to distract us from the real truth of God's Word, trying to distract us from the plan and the purpose of God in our lives. The enemy is still at work trying to disprove God's Word because he knows the tremendous power of a church unified around God's Word and God's will. And if that church stands up and begins to march, the enemy knows the gates of hell will not prevail against that church. And so he wants to continue to disturb and distract and keep us from from coming together in the way that we should. And so that's number one. Number two, whenever a Holy Spirit-filled believer, and I'm talking about if it's a pastor, if it's a teacher, if it's a deacon, I'm talking about if it's a mom or a dad, a Holy Spirit-filled believer who stands up with God's Word and under the power of God, by the Spirit of God, teaches the Word of God in the name of Jesus. I'm here to tell you, you can know that when that Word is going forth in power, captives can and will be set free. When that Word is going forth in power, souls can be saved. When that Word is going forth in power, those chains that have bound us can be broken and dropped away and we'll wonder, why didn't I get this before? Because we didn't believe God's Word. The authority in God's Word, by God's power, it's there. And you might hear some six-year-old quoting John 3.30, he must increase, I must decrease, and you'll suddenly get it! And you'll be set free. Third and finally, very seriously, my question to you and my challenge to you is how have you been treating God's Word? Is God's Word to you a foundational life manual? Is this a manual of grace that says, this is going to be the foundation of my life? Is that how you treat God's Word? Or have you maybe kind of fallen into that place where God's Word is more of an advice column, that you can take it or leave it? Have we allowed the enemy to so spread doubt in our hearts that we find it hard to really trust God? That we think we can mess up God's plan so bad that God can't even get around our mess up. There are a lot of things in in this world that are just not true. I think it was Will Rogers that said, it's not so much that people believe lies, it's just they believe things that ain't so. 
And so much of us, we do that. We find it hard to really trust God's word. We find it hard to really trust God. And so my invitation this morning, I believe God's invitation, is trust in his word. Just a few words and I'm finished. Come to Jesus. You say, Brother Robert, I'm already saved. I, I, I understand that. But maybe you're sitting here as a saved, as an on the way to heaven, born again child of God. But you're sitting here thinking, my, the, the fire in my heart is almost out. I mean, it is a flickering ember. It's almost gone. It's just the roaring fire of that first love is missing, Brother Robert. What do I do? This is what you do. You come to Jesus. And he will fan that flickering ember back into a roaring flame. Spending time with Him, spending time in His Word, worshiping as we did this morning, crying out to Him in every possible way we can. You can make, well, no, let me say it this way. He can make your faith new again. We are encouraged in the book of Timothy to stir up the gift. Well, I'm here to tell you He'll stir up the, the, the ember that's almost gone out. You may have come here today feeling like you're bound, feeling like I just can't help it, I don't have any choice, I can't see any other way, but I'm just bound and gagged and the enemy's got me. I can tell you right now that Jesus is offering every one of us freedom today. You can leave here this morning singing, my chains are gone, I've been set free. How do you do it? You come to Jesus. Whether you've been saved before or you've never asked Jesus to be the Lord and Savior of your life, I'm telling you, if you're here and you've never been saved, He's ready to save you today, and He's going to invite you to come. As we have a word of invitation, He wants to set you free. He wants to bring that, that flickering faith back to roaring life, but He also wants to save that one that's never been born again. You do that by coming to Him in repentance and asking Him to forgive you for the sin in your life, and He will forgive you, and He will give you new life. And you can walk away from here today in freedom and strength. Let's pray together.